Welcome to Hope Assembly of God Online. We believe no matter the journey, there is always hope. This is a recording of our live Sunday sermon, unedited, uncut, real. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, and we've entitled the series, Learning to Lead. No matter how long we have been in leadership positions, and we all are a leader in one way or another, even if we lead ourselves, which is the most important leadership position you will have. But with the complexity of life and the complexity of relationships, there's always something to learn as we lead. And so we're looking at Nehemiah, one of the great leaders of Scripture, uh, to learn from him and then apply it to our own lives. Last week we began uh, the, the sub-topic of learning to lead through opposition. Learning to lead through opposition. And if you are ever trying to accomplish anything for God and to accomplish something good, I can assure you opposition will arise. And we talked about the reasons for that last week and then how the enemy works through that. G.K. Chesterton said this, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they're generally the same person. And so we must love our enemies, but also understand what we are to do. This was certainly the case with Nehemiah. His neighbors were the surrounding nations that hated the Israelites, that wanted Jerusalem for themselves, and were going to try to do everything they could to make it impossible for them to rebuild the wall so that ultimately they could accomplish their agenda and not God's agenda. That's why opposition arose in Nehemiah. Now, through this series, I've been talking and telling you some stories of my own life because that's the life I know and that's the life that I've lived. And some of those things are, uh, you know, church-related, but I think they're relatable in, in every, every instance. 1993. How many were not even born in 1993 to make me feel worse about myself? Some of you are just outright lying. Like that, that back corner there, I would be afraid that lightning would come down. I should have asked, do you even remember 1993? It would be a better question. But anyway, I'm just teasing. In 19, not you, Janet Bassanos, those behind you. I know you weren't even born in 93. Anyway, in 1993, God called us to plant a church in Greenbrook, New Jersey. How many know where Greenbrook, New Jersey is? Couple, well, Dora, you, yeah, thank you uh, for remembering that. It's good. Anybody else know where Greenbrook is? It's 20 miles west of the Newark Airport on Route 22. Okay, so it's in, in that crazy, crazy area up, up there. We were 26 years old. Dory was eight months pregnant when we left her home church. Uh, not knowing if anybody was going to come with us to help plant that church. It was one of those things that at 26 you can do, at 56 you would think they were crazy. But uh, that's, that's what we did, and we began meeting in an Italian kitchen. And I say Italian kitchen because I want you to picture a large enough kitchen that we could hold church in, and it was certainly true. At one point we had up to 50 people in this kitchen. We had chairs and, and everything. And whenever the lady of the home would want service to end early, she would cook lasagna in the oven right behind me as I was trying to preach. And so that was a short service. Uh, but I've been making up for it ever since. Um, anyway, so we met there until we outgrew it. And we went to the schools uh, in, in that region to see if we could meet there, and we got turned down at, at every opportunity. Finally, we found a plaza right on Route 22, which the best way I can describe it is like the Black Horse Pike 
only with the plazas closer to the road, but busy like that. A lot of stoplights, a lot of traffic. We lived a mile and a half from the church at one point. It would take me 15, 20 minutes to get to the church on a Wednesday night. It was, it was a crazy, busy, busy area. But we got turned down at, at all of the schools. And so we found a plaza and we negotiated with the, uh, the owners of the plaza. And they, those two were quite a, quite a pair uh, to negotiate with. They finally uh, went with what we were offering, but we had to go before the zoning board in a small town. Now, if you've ever had experience with a zoning board in a small town, it is difficult. Thankfully, I was too young to even know what I was facing. I had no idea. I wasn't even smart enough to know how dumb I was. And so we get there and just thought, well, why wouldn't every community want to have a new church? Uh, well, that's not the case. And so they made us go through multiple hoops, which now I understand because they, didn't, they wanted to make sure that we had some backing behind us. And I, I get it now, but it was difficult. I had to be sworn in uh, for the first time. I was terrified. And then, you know, we'd go to the meeting and they wouldn't get to it on the agenda, would set us back another month. And it just went on and on. And we're praying, Lord, you know, uh, we do believe you're in this. So we finally get to the meeting where we knew we were going to be heard. We had an attorney that attended our church, that her firm let her work pro bono, which was a blessing uh, in doing that. We had to have a traffic thing and all of this, you know, you name it, we had to jump through it. But, but there was uh, finally in the public portion of the meeting, a lady and her husband came and, and she got up to speak and said, well, we think that this church is going to be too loud and we don't think a church should be able to meet in that plaza. Now, okay, we're on Route 22 in the most densely populated part of our country, if not the whole planet. Cars driving back and forth, trucks honking of horn. And it wasn't like their house was right behind it. It went up a hill, if you know that area, the Wachung Mountains, went up a hill, barrier, and then their homes were there. So, I mean, I wasn't real smart, but I did realize this is not about the noise. This is about something else. And so she began to speak, and I'm just sweating, just panicking, uh, because I didn't know what to do or what to say. And honestly, I felt, and then she goes, well, why don't you go to the schools? And now she's addressing me, which wasn't actually appropriate. And, but I responded, which also wasn't appropriate. Uh, but thankfully, I responded uh, by what the, uh, I believe the Lord gave me a word of wisdom because I didn't know what to say. And I believe this, and I don't throw out the gifts of the Spirit uh, you know, easily, word of wisdom. And I, I turned and I looked her in the eye and said, you know, we're not here in this community to fight. We're here to serve. And it changed everything, everything. It went through that night. We were able to get in there and renovate. We had sanctuary on one side, classrooms, nursery, office on the other side, all of that. So uh, by God's grace, we're in this plaza and we used to call it Funerals Are Us because in that plaza was a pizza place here. That was for the catering, a florist, a preacher, a hairdresser, this is the truth, and a casket shop. That's the truth. They were selling caskets. So we called it Funerals Are Us, one-stop shopping from, from catering to casket and everything in between. So anyway, uh, you might find this hard to believe, but one night I was at the church and I went into the pizza shop. 
I know that's so unlike me. Could you imagine my office being walking distance to a pizza place? But anyway, I walk into the pizza place. Who's there? The husband of this, of, of this, this couple that were upset about the church. And I walked right up to him. Hey, good to see you. And I don't think I hugged him or anything. I didn't know him that well. But I said, hey, let me show you what we've been able to do at the church. And he came and walked through and was completely silent and just didn't know what to say. And I sent him home to his miserable wife. Uh, but anyway, that's not very nice, Doug. Don't encourage me. But anyway, uh, you know, and so we were there for, for years until till we came here. But at that point, and really why I'm telling you the story is, is that whenever you're trying to accomplish something for the kingdom of God, you're going to face opposition. Don't be surprised by it. In 1993 at 26, I was surprised. Now I'm not. Because not everybody wants to see the kingdom of God advanced. And so when you're trying to serve the Lord, in whatever capacity you're doing that, don't be surprised that you're going to face opposition. Because the enemy doesn't want you to succeed. The enemy doesn't want the kingdom of God to succeed. And so they will do everything within their power to stop that from happening. Opposition is part of leadership. Don't be surprised by it. Expect it. Know that it's coming and be prepared for it. I don't think that Nehemiah was naive enough to think that they could just go in, rebuild these walls, establish a kingdom, and everybody was going to be thrilled. I think he understood we're going to face difficult times, and we need to understand that in leadership as well. And so the enemy used multiple tactics to try to get them to stop to doing, doing what God wanted them to do. We talked about ridicule last week. And why ridicule uh, works so well, because it's easy and effective. It's easy and effective. And if you look at the, the, the first part of Nehemiah chapter 4, what Sanballat said about them was all true. He was ridiculing them. And I'll just use one example. What are you weak and feeble Israelites going to do? The truth was they were weak and feeble. They didn't have the resources and the power. So watch, when you are ridiculed, people will always touch on your own insecurities. And that's what makes ridicule so easy and effective. But you have to overcome that, and I'll show you how to do that. Intimidation was next. That's what we're going to spend some time uh, looking at. Discouragement, fear. The people turned inward instead of outward, selfish. They started thinking of themselves and not the things of God. A compromise, uh, and by compromise, we mean uh, compromising your principles, your godly principles, not, not negotiating and coming to a happy medium, a medium win-win. That's not the, what we're talking about. We're talking about compromising your ideals because of opposition, slander, threats. They would go to uh, these world leaders would go to some of the Jews that were afraid and they would talk to them to get them to talk to others and, and all of these. They would use every means possible in order to stop the work of the Lord. So we talked about ridicule, which I mentioned. I want to talk today about intimidation. Intimidation. That's in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, the Ammonites and Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead 
and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They were furious. Now, furious has that idea of an, of an intensity. They weren't mildly upset. They were furious that this was happening. And so they all made plans, verse 8, to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. A common enemy brought these four enemy nations together. They all wanted to stop the walls from being built. While I don't have a, a map to show you, I'll talk you through the placement of all of these nations. Sanballat was to the north, Geshem to the south, Tobiah to the east, and the Ashdodites, which was the Philistines, was to the west. Guess what? This tiny nation was surrounded by enemies. Isn't it interesting? It's still the same way today. Uh, it cracks me up when I look at a world map and you look and you see, you try to find Israel, first of all. If you don't know where it's at, like if you're not sure, you're, you're not going to be able to find it on a map. This tiny country surrounded, and yet it is the epicenter of everything that's happening. Anyway, that's a story for another time. So here were these weak and feeble uh, Israelites surrounded by their enemies, completely surrounded. And these enemies were powerful nations. They weren't weak and feeble. They were powerful, and everyone knew it. And so they came together to make plans to fight against them. And watch the word at the end. And so they wanted to fight against us and throw us into confusion. Okay? I want to show you something here that's important. Confusion is never from God, because God is not the author of confusion. Now, this is going to be important to understand because you're going to have to see the source of the opposition before you can work through the opposition and lead through it. So the source of confusion is always the enemy. God wants to bring clarity. Now, I don't know if I'll get to this later, but you know we have to make complex decisions in our lives every day. And we can go round and round in our minds. If I do this, if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, if I do this. Listen, when you're looking to serve God and you want to do his will, he will bring clarity to you. So if you're in a state of confusion, ask God for clarity and he will make it plain. Secondly, ask God for courage in the midst of confusion. So not only do you know what to do, but you have the courage to do it. Okay? So the enemy will always try to throw you into confusion because if you're confused and you're just wandering around, nothing ever gets accomplished. The vision, the mission never gets accomplished through confusion. Let God bring clarity, bring clarity to it. I'll give you another example here at the church. When we, when we were going to do the major renovation uh, here at the church, we had reached an impasse where the... Uh, Builders, architect, etc., had, how do I say, uh, they just put us in a bad spot. The, what they, the plans they presented to us were $1.1 million over budget. And that's absolutely no exaggeration. I'm not an angry person for the most part. I got angry one time when I was coaching basketball, I had blind rage. And I couldn't, I lost my sight for a second. 
That's one time, the only time that's ever happened. And when the architect presented his plans that were $1.1 million over budget, I didn't quite go blind, but if I could have choked him, I would have, to the glory of God. <laughs> what are you doing? So we're sitting at the table, and I remember it. I remember the guys from our church were with me. He's like, well, we could save $5,000 a year. and five. You better start saving hundreds of thousands of dollars here. Okay? It was a very stressful time. I'd already told the church we're not going to do something that's going to put us into major debt so that all we do as a church is pay the bank. Uh, we're just not going to do that. So we just stopped. We were in an impasse, and we weren't sure what to do. So I got a call from the engineer that we had worked with. He had driven by. He said, Reverend, people outside the church always call me Reverend. Reverend, what's going on with the building? And I explained to him where we were. He goes, no problem. I got somebody to help you. Go design to build. Don't start with the architect. Let the contractor work with the architect. What was happening here? Long story to say, God brought clarity. He had given direction, and we weren't going to compromise by going a million dollars in debt. Did we, if we had done that 10, 12 years ago, we would probably have nothing that we have today because all we would do was pay the bank. We wouldn't have other pastors doing baptism. We wouldn't have the children's ministry we have. We wouldn't be able to support 60 missionaries or more. We wouldn't be able to give you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. We wouldn't be able to do anything. You can't compromise. You, let, you can't let confusion hinder the work of the Lord. Pray for clarity and he will give it. Now, I'm not against like, having to get debt in order to accomplish different things. That, that's not my point. Uh, you probably, most of us, you know, didn't have cash to pay for our homes. We got a mortgage, and that's wise, and you work at it, and there's some wisdom. That's not my point. My point is, let God bring clarity. If there's confusion, it's from the enemy. Clarity, courage, and he'll bring it about. So what did they do when all of these uh, powerful enemies were getting ready to fight them? Verse 9, but, B-U-T, which is a, 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 a contrasting word. So here are the enemies, but we prayed. That's what they did. We prayed to our God, and it didn't stop there. Guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Once again, Nehemiah led the people in prayer. Let's go to God. Let's go to God. Let's get some clarity on this situation. And then what did they do? They prayed and they placed guards, the spiritual and the practical. And I said this at the end of last week's service, Lord, protect my home, but I'm gonna lock the doors when I leave, right? The spiritual and the practical. And that's what Nehemiah did. It didn't mean that he wasn't a man of faith. In fact, he was a man of great faith. He had such great faith that God had given him wisdom. And the wisdom was we're going to pray and we're going to post a guard. Jesus put it this way, watch and pray. Keep a lookout and pray. Faith and works working together to accomplish God's purposes. The next uh, tactic that the enemy used was discouragement. Verse 10, then the people of Judah were, then the people of Judah began to complain the workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Pressure from the outside often causes problems from the inside or causes problems on the inside. Watch, let me say it again. Pressure from the outside will cause problems on the inside. 
And this happens in all relationships and in marriages. It's not necessarily what's going on in the home. It's what's going on outside the home that's brought back in and it causes problems there. There's incredible stress on the outside. It becomes stressful on the inside. And it's important as a leader, now watch this, as a leader to be able to read the room, to be able to discern what's going on. If you're leading people and they're being discouraged or overwhelmed or overworked or whatever, you as a leader have to be able to read that room. Or if your spouse is going through a difficult time, for what, you have to be able to read the room. That's what leaders do. They discern what's going on outside of just what they can see and they can look beyond that and know what's going on. You have to be able to look. You have to be able to look at yourself. You have to be able to look at those you lead. Discouragement will lead to defeat of the purposes of God if you allow discouragement to take root in your heart. It will stop the work of the Lord. Now watch, just as confusion is from below and not from above, discouragement is from below and not from above. If you are discouraged today, then we're going to have victory over that, let me just say. But that discouragement that you're facing is not from God, it's from the enemy. God never discourages his people. God never says, oh, you're not going to make it. It's too tough for you. I don't know how things are going to work out. That's not God. That's the enemy. Discouragement always comes from below. You can't lead if you don't know the source of where these things are coming from. But when you recognize the source, which leads you to remember the purpose or the mission and the vision, and even more importantly for us as believers, you recognize the source, which is the enemy, and then you, rem uh, you remember the one that gave us the purpose in the first place, and his name is God. See? God is the one that says, you're going to make it through. Jesus said it like this, before the storm that he calmed, he said, fellas, we're going to go to the other side. Which meant they were going to go to the other side. Then the storm came, they thought they were all going to die. When he had already told them, we're going to get to the other side. In fact, I'm so sure of it, I'm going to take a nap. Okay? And so that's what he, uh, that's what he did. We must remember the purpose giver through discouragement. Recognize the source, it's not from God. Remember God and what he has done in your life. And the fourth uh, tactic that the enemy uses is fear. Fear. Meanwhile, our enemies in verse 11 are saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. And the Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from at us. They will come at us from all different directions. Franklin Delano Roosevelt in his first inaugural speech said this, you know it, the only thing we have to fear is what? Fear That's it. Fear is the obstacle to accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish. Fear paralyzes us. Fear of failure. Fear of making a mistake. I'm gonna just tell a funny story here. Uh, Linda, I interviewed Linda a couple weeks ago and Rita a couple weeks after that uh, or whenever it was. And they were both not used to being on camera and uh, they were concerned. And I first told Linda, Linda said, well, what, what if something happens, I start coughing? No problem, if you have to walk out of the room, I'll do an interpretive dance <laughs> online until you get back. 
what could go wrong? Rita was a little nervous, but once she started, look out. Look out, both of them. Once they started, look out. Uh, and I said the same thing. Rita, if anything happens, again, I'm there. I will do an interpretive dance, a cappella, no music, just in my head. You don't even want to know what's going on up here sometimes. Interpret nothing, nothing can happen. And you know what those ladies did? And they were not frightened to death, but it was difficult for them. You know what? They said, I know this is something God wants me to do because God has done so much in my life, in our lives, and it might be an encouragement to someone else. So we're going to do this interview with this crazy pastor that might break into interpretive dance. We're going to do it because we're not going to let fear stand in the way of what God wants to accomplish. That's it. And they did an amazing job. Amazing. Fear of failure. Fear of making a mistake. You know when you're afraid of making mistakes, you'll make more mistakes? You get that? You just make more because you're too tense. If you make a mistake when you're, when you're folding a parachute, okay, that's a big mistake. We can agree on that. But most of the mistakes that can possibly be made aren't life and death. They're just mistakes. I have a thing that we talk about with our staff. A mistake is when someone stops talking long enough to actually do something. If you're doing something, you will make a mistake. Maybe not do it twice or three times, but you're going to make a mistake. Don't be so afraid of making a mistake that you're, you're unwilling to step out and do what God has called you to do. That's fear that paralyzes. Fear of man, what's somebody else going to say? I'm gonna to get to Geshem maybe sometime. My thing with Geshem is who is Geshem and who cares what he thinks? I'm answerable to God. You know, the people that you're most afraid of in life, oh boy. Most of our family here, you all know me well enough. If you're visiting and have never been here before, I apologize in advance. But most of the people you're afraid of you have no reason to be afraid of them. They're disasters. Their whole life is a disaster. They've not made a good decision in 40 years. And yet you're afraid to do what God has called you to do because of what they're going to say about it. It's ridiculous. Don't fear man. Fear God and then you won't fear man. Be more afraid that you're not doing what God wants you to do than you're afraid of, you know, sister, somebody, aunt, somebody. I don't know. Who are these people and why do we care so much? Why have you, on a serious note, given that person so much power in your life and not given God enough power in your life? Let's cut through all the baloney and get to the root of the matter. Fear will paralyze you. It'll keep you from doing what God wants you to do. Fear of the future. Well, how's it going to turn out? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what the end of this message holds. I don't know what holds when I leave church and walk to my house. I don't know what's going to happen. The next time I'm on the road, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know anything that's going to happen in the future. So you can either sit there and worry about the future, or you can get up and do something for the glory of God that lives would be impacted. That's all. Fear of what? Is God watching over you or not? Is your life held in his hand? Do you have all wisdom? 
No, but he does. Well, I know, but I've had bad things happen to me. But you don't know yet in fullness because you only look in the mirror and it's dim. Someday you're going to see that God worked things out for your good and for your glory, even in the midst of the worst of things. And the reason I'm preaching this is so hard is because I know that we get caught up in the what-ifs of life. What if this happens? And what if this happens? And what if this happens? You can drive yourself crazy and everybody around you crazy. I will help you. I will help you in 10 seconds. Ready? No extra charge. Now, if you didn't put in the offering yet, then there is a charge. But if you already put in the offering, there's no extra charge. In 10 seconds, I will change your life. Stop focusing on what if and start focusing on what is. Right now, I'm in church preaching the Word of God. Well, what if when I'm walking over to my house, a meteor falls and hits me on the head? I don't know, and I can't control it. But what is, is that I'm serving God now. I'm enjoying the presence of the Lord. I'm thankful for those that were baptized, made me cry from the very beginning. I'm thankful for all of you. I'm thankful for what God has done in the past. Stop the what ifs. Focus on the what is, and it will change your life. Fear will be broken in your life. Confusion will be broken in your life. Discouragement will be broken in your life when you stop living the what ifs and start living the what is. All right. Hello? I know I, hello? I know I scared some of you, and if I was afraid of you, I would not have said that. Thanks for getting that. So what did he do? So Nehemiah read the room. He knew that his people were afraid. So I placed armed guards, verse 13, behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people, watch, to stand, stand guard by families. And I armed them with swords, spears, and bows. Two quick things and I'm almost done. Nehemiah didn't have time or the energy to, to chase after every rumor that was going on in the nation. And I live by this quote, or try to. The train doesn't stop because a dog comes out and barks at it. If the train stopped every time a dog barked at it, it would never accomplish its purpose. When you're a leader, whether leading your own life or some others, if you stopped at every rumor and you chased after everything that everybody said that you perceived as negative, you would never accomplish the things of God. It's a distraction that brings discouragement, that brings doubt, that paralyzes you and stops you from doing what God has called you to do. You don't have to respond to every rumor, every whatever. I heard, oh, I heard somebody say, well, good. If they had any guts, they would say it to me personally. Are you ready for some real talk or no? Are you done? Let me know. These people that talk behind your back, I'm going to tell you the truth, because that's what I want to tell you. I want to help you. Cowards. Cowards. That's why they do it behind your back. There's not a bit of integrity or courage in their life, or courage in their life. Don't give them that power. Nehemiah said, I can't chase all these rumors. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the proactive, preventative plan. We're going to pray, we're going to post a guard, and you're going to have the weapons you need, and you're going to work by your family. Because people will fight for their family. Amen? 
Now I wanna bring this around to something else here. You know, there might be situations in your home and in your family and you need to fight for that. And God will give you the strength. You need to fight uh, for your children and, and grandchildren and they're being bombarded and faced with so many things in this world. You have two choices, lock them in their room forever. Right or wrong? Or you pray for them, you equip them in the things of God, and you live a life of faith so that they can see it in you. Or you'll live a life of fear, and they'll be more fearful than you are. That's just the way it works. It's just the way it works. All right. He says this in verse 14. I'll jump ahead. Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord and fight. Those are my three last thoughts. Number one, you can write these down. Don't be afraid. God is with you, and he's God. Remember the Lord. Remember all that he's done in your life, and remember who he is, his awesomeness, his majesty, his glory, his magnificence. His, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-wise. He's wonderful. He's counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's the rose of Sharon, the beauty. He's the lamb. He's the bright and morning star. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the God that loves you. That's the God that's on your side. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord and fight the good fight. Paul said at the end of his life, in his last writings, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. And now prepared for me is a crown of righteousness. I'm going to touch on a couple more things. When we fight the good fight, we're not fighting with worldly weapons. We're fighting with spiritual weapons that are powerful enough to tear down the strongholds. The Israelites couldn't fight with worldly weapons enough to defeat their enemies. But when they put God into the mixture, he can take what's in your hand and make it a mighty weapon. Our battles are spiritual. Now, I'm really going to step out here on this. I was talking with my family yesterday as we were watching some of the things at the revival at Asbury. That generation is crying out for God because they're tired of where the church has been. They're tired of politics. They're tired of hatred. They're tired of the news that brings division. They're tired of the evangelical church caring more about the presidency than the power of God that's available through prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit. They're tired of all of it. And they're just simply saying, God, we want you. And we want to live for you. And we want to love like you love. And God is pouring out his spirit. Let me tell you something, and it's a fact. 
that we have, as the evangelical church, I'm only speaking for us as evangelicals because that's who we are. We have spent far too much time, put far too much focus on politics. And let me ask you, where has it gotten us? It's gotten us to churches dying, churches declining, losing whole generations because they're tired of it. Oh God, help us to get back to Jesus. Help us get back to loving our neighbor. Help us to be praying for those in authority and help us, Lord, to get over the hate, the anger, that for some reason we as the, the, the elder brother in the prodigal, sto- prodigal son story have become. That no, we don't live a wild lifestyle and we get angry at those that do, but we still don't come into the feast. Oh God, help us get back to what the church is called to do. To rebuild the walls, to reestablish relationships, to right the wrongs, to serve sacrificially, to lead courageously. That's what God has called us to do. And now I'm going to make it personal. That's what God has called each of you to do. He has called you to lead with courage and faith He has called you to recognize the source of the opposition and to remember who he is. And when you remember who he is, the opposition grows smaller and smaller and smaller. But when you forget who he is, the opposition gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But I'm telling you, there are good days ahead for you. That some of these things that have hindered you in life are being broken down and being torn down. And I don't know if Amanda said it exactly like this, but it was something along the lines of, of, and I know God has better things in store for me. And I believe that for Amanda and Gracie, and I believe that for each and every one of you, God has great things in store for you. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to Hope Online Podcast. For more information about Hope Assembly of God, go to www.godgivesyouhope.com or download our app in the App Store.